want to welcome you to our class this morning. We've got folks that get to watch this class and be a part of this class from all around the globe today. And it's an honor to get to be coming to you live right now from Houston, Texas, the chapel that's built onto our library complex. And we are honored that you're with us. What we've got today is a special treat coming for you, but it doesn't come till the end of the class. And I call it a treat, but really I hope all of class is a treat. The, the, at the end, you will get to hear Phil Keggy. This week he does Ringo. But before we get to that, we're going to stay on the road to Emmaus from Luke chapter 24. Now, something incredible happens on that story. Let's just be reminded of the basics. It's Easter Sunday. Jesus has been resurrected, but most people haven't seen him, and they're not aware of the validity of a physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And so while walking on the road to Emmaus, two disciples, Cleopas and an unnamed disciple, two disciples are walking, and Jesus joins them in their midst, but they don't recognize him. And Jesus says, what's going on? And they say, well, are you the only fella coming from Jerusalem that doesn't know what's going on? The events of the last few days have been incredible. Jesus said, tell me about it. They said, well, you know, Jesus, the, the, the man who was strong in word and deed, uh, Jesus was crucified. And some women have said he was resurrected this morning, but we had not seen him. And uh, uh, this is like all of the news. How can you be so out of touch? And then Jesus begins to explain to them that he's more than just a man strong in word and deed, that Jesus is Messiah. Jesus uses the Old Testament to open their eyes, eventually, to, to the fact that Jesus, the resurrected Lord, was a, a necessity. It's something that God had talked about from the very beginning. And, and they reached... Uh, Emmaus and, and the two asked Jesus if Jesus would join them for dinner, clearly invigorated by the discussion. Jesus comes in to eat with them. And as he prays over the bread, they recognize it's Jesus. And then Jesus leaves them. At that point, there's an interesting line. The two are talking between themselves and they say, didn't our hearts burn while he was opening the scriptures to us on the road. And that idea of Jesus and feeling the burn in their heart that the Lord had to be crucified, that he had to be resurrected, that this is something that had been talked about for not just generations, but for ages And so we're taking that road to Emmaus still with the apostles during this time before, between Easter and Pentecost in the church calendar. We're taking that time, and this morning on our road to Emmaus, we're going to do three things. We want to know the verses that are relevant to this class, and then we want to see how these verses fit together so that hopefully we can feel the burn in our hearts as the Lord is opened up to us through the pages of the Old Testament. So let's begin by knowing the scriptures. The main scripture that I want to start with is called Psalm 23. Perhaps you know it. 
it begins, Yahweh, or the Lord, is my shepherd. Now, when I was in college, uh, getting my degree in Hebrew and Greek, this was one of my textbooks. It's called Biblia Hebraica, the Stuttgartensia, the Stuttgart version. And uh, I took Psalms one semester, uh, and I was the only student in the class, which was um, challenging and uh, invigorating and scary. And the first day of class normally would be a syllabus. The professor would hand us something. Um, but, but I had a, a doctor, a, guy, a fellow named Clyde Miller. We called him Mad Dog Miller. And it was my first time to read Hebrew under, under Professor Miller. And so I was coming to class expecting it to be something uh, of a syllabus and an outline of what we were going to read and when. But he started out by handing me a Xeroxed page of Hebrew without an indication of where it came from. And it was pretty much what you see right here on the Elmo. And he said to me, I want you to start right here, and I just want to see how good your Hebrew is. Now, that created a great deal of anxiety in me. I mean, it put me on the spot. I, I wasn't, I didn't know. I had not done any preparation. I looked at it, Mizmor la David. Mizmor la David means a psalm uh, dedicated to David or inspired by David or even written by David. And then it says, Yahweh, which is the name of God, Yahweh. Um, Roi lo echthar. Now, Roi means shepherd. Shepherd is, it, well, it actually means my shepherd. It's got my attached to the end. So Yahweh, my shepherd. Then it says lo, which means not. And then it's got this word, exar. And I froze. I couldn't think of exar. I'm like, exar, exar. My professor looks at me a bit bemusedly. And he says, did it occur to you what XR is? And I said, well, I mean, it comes from Kassar, but I'm having a mind blank right now on Kassar. And he says, to be in lack, to decrease. And I said, yeah, yeah. And I started looking at it. And I said, I'm sorry, I just didn't know I was going to be reading this first day. And he said, are you really struggling and I said, well, I mean, you know, and, and I'm thinking, this is so unfair of him. He said, honestly, are you really struggling with Psalm 23? And only then did I realize, oh, my heavens, this is Psalm 23. And I said, no, I'm not struggling at all. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He was, and I just started quoting the psalm. Now, obviously, we had to stop and break it down. But Psalm 23 is a psalm so familiar to so many people, even people that don't go to church, that sometimes when we look at the psalm, we may get distracted by what we already know. But I want us to be familiar with this scripture together. And so let's look at it together for just a moment and, 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 and know this scripture fresh in our minds when we then go to our next passage in John chapter 10, okay? The Lord is my shepherd. Now, if you look at this, you're going to see something very interesting. Lord here is written 
in all capital letters. The L is a bigger capital, a, a, a larger font, but all of this is in capital letters. There's a reason why. The translators want you to understand who the Lord is in this passage. And you can best understand that if you go back to Exodus chapter 3, where Moses is in front of the burning bush. And Moses in front of the burning bush is having a dialogue with God. And Moses says to God, see if I can make this even a little bit bigger. Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, they'll ask me, what's his name? And what am I going to say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he's using a Hebrew verb, hayah. Hayah is the Hebrew verb to be. Now, Hebrew doesn't have a present tense per se. But, but the verb to be is what's being used here. I am. And God said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord. See that? We've got it again. All capital letters. The first one bigger than the others. And that's a form of that word, I am, Hayah. The form of that is what we would write as Y. Let's see if I can scoot it up. H, W, H, a German W, a V, Yahweh, Yahweh. That's the name that God told Israel to call him. So when the Bible talks about the name of God, it's talking, uh, it's got great significance on what it means by name, but the name of God as as a word is Yahweh. And so when the Bible translators come across those four Hebrew letters that are the name of God, so that you don't just think it's the common word for Lord, Adonai, they translate it specially into English with all capital letters. Yahweh. Now, several hundred years before Jesus was born, Jewish scholars in Alexandria, Egypt, home of the world's largest library at the time, worked on translating the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, the most common language in the Mediterranean world at the time, so that it could be both in the Alexandrian library and be used by Greek-speaking Jews all over. So several hundred years before Christ, they translated this passage And they put it not into the Hebrew that I've written here in purple. But if we zoom out a little bit to give us a little more space, we'll use green. And they put it in as ego, E-G-O, hardly shows up, ego, a-me. Ego, E-G, long-o, actually. Somebody's going to email me and say you wrote it wrong. Let's do it on the side so that people can see what it looks like. It's Ego, a me, e i m i. Ego, a me. That's the Greek translation of the name of God. 
by the Jewish scholars 200 years before Jesus. All right? Now, that's, I don't, if you didn't follow all of that, that's okay, because I'm going to come back to it in a little bit. But go back to Psalm 23, because this is absolutely critical that we understand who is being referenced here in Psalm 23. Yahweh, ego eimi, is my shepherd. If we were reading it in the Greek version, it's ego eimi. If we were all in class together, I would make you say ego eimi. So that you just heard that ego eimi. Think like the commercial, let go my ego. Ego is I. Ego comes straight from it. And then eimi is I am. So it's an emphatic I am in Greek. This is not just any Lord. This is the name of God. Ego a me. Yahweh is my shepherd. And as a result, there's not anything that I'm going to lack. There's not anything that, that I'm going to run short on that I need. He's going to make me. And the Hebrew there is a verb that, that's, that's causative. He's going to make me lie down in green pastures. I love that part of it because if you left me, God, to my own devices, I would. It's just the way I am. I'd go lay down among the thorns and the thistles. I would be really good all by myself at making my life futile, meaningless, going after things that really don't matter, trying to make as much money as I can, trying to get as many toys as I might, running through people for what they do for me instead of what I do for them. I, on my own, left to my own devices, could lay down amidst rotten thorns and thistles that hurt and destroy my life. But my shepherd won't let me. He makes me lie down in green pastures, whether I want to or not. I love this. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness because of who he is. Not because of who I am. It's for his name's sake. Remember his name. Starts out the psalm. Yahweh. Because of who he is, he leads me in paths of righteousness. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, uh, that can be translated just as readily, maybe even more readily, deep darkness. This isn't just a funeral psalm. This is when you're walking through a valley where you, you can't see your way out. The darkness is deep. This is pre-flashlight torch era. This is pre-headlights to a car era. When you're in a deep, dark valley, you don't see your way that you need to go. You can rest assured that you don't need to fear any evil. Because God's with us. He's got his rod and his staff. And there is comfort in that. He can use that rod to whoop anything that gets near us. And he can lift up that rod and lead us with that rod. 
Some people draw a distinction between rod and staff. I don't think we need to. I think the words are interchangeable here. The, 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 both can be used for correction, but both can be used for leading and guidance. It's just a reference to the, 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 the stick that the shepherd kept with him. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies and anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. I am blessed in the presence of things that are oppressive. And I can be confident that goodness and mercy is going to follow me all the days of my life. And I'll dwell in the house of ego me, Yahweh, forever. Now, that's the psalm. That's the passage. I want to move from there, though. And I want you to understand that Jesus does something profound with this concept in John chapter 10. So I'll put John chapter 10 up for you. And look what Jesus says here. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who doesn't enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man's a thief and a robber. But whoever enters the door is the shepherd of the sheep. And the sheep hear his voice. He calls out his sheep by name. He leads them out. Again, lead, another passage, a shepherd, lead. These passages just should reverberate from Psalm 23 to you. When he's brought out all of his own, he goes before him and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they won't follow. They'll flee from a stranger because they don't know his voice. Now look at this. Jesus is using a figure of speech with them. They don't understand what he's saying. They're clueless. This is the kind of thing that's going to be explained to them on the road to Emmaus, perhaps. It's one of the passages that I would suspect Jesus would have used. To give meaning to them that these Old Testament passages, there's a common motif in the Old Testament of God as the shepherd of his people. God as the shepherd of his people is something that Jesus was claiming. He's saying those Old Testament passages that speak of God shepherding his people are finding fulfillment in not just Jesus, but in his death and his resurrection. And so if we go back to the passage in John 10, while they're not understanding it, we should get more understanding. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, I'm the door of the sheep. Anybody who came before me is a thief and a robber. But the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the door. Do you know what I am is in Greek? Do you remember? He's using the same Greek expression, ego, a me. Oops, ego, a me. I am. He's echoing what the translators of the Old Testament had said 200 years before was the name of God. And he's saying it and he's personalizing it to him, Jesus. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He'll lead me beside still waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures. 
Jesus says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am ego me, Yahweh. I am the good shepherd. You go back to the preeminent passage of shepherding. Yahweh, ego me, is my shepherd. Jesus says it. Ego me, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He says, I am, he repeats it, the good shepherd. Ego me. Yahweh, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, this is profound. This is profound and invigorating. But I want to make sure we see the fit here. Because here's what his disciples had. They knew Psalm 23. They knew Yahweh was their shepherd. They didn't understand the John 10 stuff where Jesus is saying, I am Yahweh's the good shepherd, but Jesus is personalizing it. Egoing me, it's me. I am. The fit that perhaps Jesus included among the many things he talked about on the road to Emmaus is in part found in Isaiah 40. In Isaiah 40, we're going to find that Jesus is in, or God, Yahweh, is in fact the shepherd through Jesus. It's the missing piece of the puzzle, if you will, that plugs in the Old Testament motif found even beyond Psalm 23 into the teachings of Jesus as the good shepherd. And so Psalm four, or Isaiah 40, if, if you're only a little familiar with it, or maybe not familiar at all, look at the way it starts. And it's a start of a new section in Isaiah. Or uh, Isaiah, I think, as people in other lands may call it. God begins uh, with an instruction to the prophet. Comfort, comfort, says it twice. My people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, cry to her. Her warfare's ended, her iniquity pardoned. It's been tough, real tough. She's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now this is dynamic because historically, when God abandoned his people, which wasn't a full abandonment, but the image is God says, okay, you won't have anything to do with me. I'll leave. He leaves through the wilderness. And the temple is destroyed. And Jerusalem is conquered. But Isaiah says, the God who left through the wilderness, a voice will cry out, in the wilderness, prepare a way. He's coming back. Jesus will make it clear he's going to rebuild a temple. Not one of, of, of uh, stones like, like uh, the, the Jews built. 
He's going to destroy that temple even and rebuild another temple, the temple of his body. But this is happening in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway because every valley is going to be lifted up. Every mountain and hill is going to be brought down. The uneven ground is going to become level. The rough places, flat as a plain, flat as Lubbock. And the glory of, look at this, the glory of Yahweh, ego eimi, will be revealed so that flesh can see it. And we know this, kipi Adonai diber, because the mouth of the Lord Yahweh has said it. And grass may wither and flowers may fade, but the word of the Lord will last forever. That comes in succeeding verses. But I want to skip through those. Well, actually, I'll show you that one real quick. Um, It says, the mouth of the Lord has spoken it, and the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may not see it today, but it's going to happen And when John the Baptist comes to herald the presence of Jesus, the scripture specifically says he's the fulfillment of Isaiah 40. You can't read the gospel accounts without your mind going straight to Isaiah 40. Because it's quoted in the gospels. Prepare the way of the Lord. And that's what John the Baptist does. And so look what we're told. This is amazing. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. The Jews that translated this into Greek 200 years before Jesus use a word there. Euangelion is is the idea of good news. We just know it because in the Greek New Testament, it's always translated gospel. That's what it means, gospel. So herald of the gospel, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald again of the gospel. And say, behold your God. Because the Lord God, and that's Adonai with ego me, Yahweh. The Lord God comes with might. And his arm rules for him. The Hebrew concept of an arm is, is your power, what you, what you exercise dominion over. That's what the arm stood for. And so the exercise of his dominion, his power, who he is, rules for him. And his reward is with him. He comes with reward. He comes with recompense. God also comes with judgment. And he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. The lambs are the babies. If, if you've got a flock of sheep and they have babies and you're taking them out to pasture, there are times where the lambs can't keep up. And you've got to just pick them up and take care of them. And that's what God's saying. God's saying, look, I'm going to tend my flock like a shepherd. I'm going to take those little lambs. I'm going to take the people in my flock that that can't keep up. And I'm just going to carry them. 
Not forever. Because the lambs are going to grow. We should never think that God says he's a place of refuge for us to escape the world and never have anything to do with the world and its misery. What God says in Scripture is, is I'm going to carry you, I'll be a refuge for you to escape long enough for you to grow to be able to face the world and its challenges. God doesn't seek to remove us from the tribulation of this world, but to teach us to be of good cheer because we understand that he's overcome the world. And so we can walk in victory even in the midst of our enemies. He doesn't say, you won't have any enemies. He says, I'll prepare a table for you in the midst of your enemies. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He'll gather those little lambs in his bosom. He'll gent- he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Those are the mothers, the mother sheep that haven't given birth yet. And they've got to be led very gently. You can't overwork them. And that's what God will do as a shepherd. But this is ego a me. This is Yahweh. This is the Lord God. And the key to this is, this is Jesus, the resurrected one. This is Jesus who is the good shepherd. So within this, where does it leave us? It created within Cleopas and the other disciple a burning desire. I want it to be a burning desire for you and me. I want it to be a burning desire on multiple levels. First of all, if anyone ever wants to doubt whether or not Jesus rightly claimed to be Messiah, rightly claimed to be divine, if we read these Gospels with an understanding of of the language and the ideas and the concepts and the, the themes. If we read these Gospels and understand the Old Testament prophetic words that were written down hundreds of years before, then we begin to see that, 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 that it's like a hand in a glove with the fit. Famous lawyer moment. Um, Johnny Cochran was defending O.J. Simpson some 25 years ago in a criminal case for allegedly murdering his, his ex-wife. And the prosecutors had tried to get O.J. Simpson to put on a glove. Now, O.J. Simpson's lawyers were pretty clever, so they said, hey, well, we're not going to have him put his hand inside what... Nobody knows what germs are in that glove or anything else. So first, O.J. Simpson put on a, a doctor's plastic glove which, of course, changes the size of his hand. But then when he tries to pull on the glove that was supposedly the murder glove that stopped the fingerprints, it won't fit over his hand, which, granted, is wearing a plastic glove. That opened up for Johnny Cochran a very famous line in his closing statement that he used over and over. He said, if the glove don't fit, you must acquit If the glove don't fit, you must acquit. And he said it over and over and over. It became the mantra in his closing argument. 
in our situation here, the glove fits. The prophetic glove with the historic Messiah who is crucified and resurrected. That fits like a hand in a glove. And that should burn a desire in your heart to know more. To know more about the Old Testament. To know more about the New Testament. To know more about Bible study. I hope you'll be here next week. Next week we're going to start looking at some other passages. I'm excited to open up the book of Jonah to you. And perhaps you'll see Jonah in a light you've never seen it before. Because of what it says about Jesus. Prophetically. But all of that's to come. I just want the burning desire in your heart. To learn more. But there's more to the burning desire than this. There's also in the burning desire. This comfort. Comfort my people. If we understand that this isn't God simply setting up a template. And then building it. It's not simply God showing an architectural blueprint of who Jesus will be. And then Jesus was that. But there was a method to the, to, the, to the work that God was about. The whole purpose of this is not simply so that we'll know that Jesus is the Messiah, but that we will trust in him and derive from him those things that change our life. God doesn't say, inform, inform my people. Give them intellectual knowledge so that they can answer the quiz at the right time. One of my daughters who's in here today, we've got four incredible daughters. One of them is Sarah. And Sarah's got a summer class she's taken this summer. It's on Christian heritage. And... She's got to learn the material to answer the questions to get the A in the course. That's not what this is about. God's not trying to give us these passages so that we can answer a quiz. God's giving us this because it changes every moment of every day we live. He says, comfort Comfort my people with this. This gives us comfort. This tells us when things aren't going your way, be patient. This tells us when you can't see the way out, trust in the Lord. This tells us when everything is topsy-turvy, God will make a way plain. This tells us when enemies are assaulting us, God will defend us. This tells us when we can't focus, God is calling our attention to him. This tells us when we've messed up, God's calling us to repentance with an assurance of forgiveness and a promise that he will lead us beside still waters, that he will make us lie down in green pastures. This is a sign, this is to tell us that if our life has been wasted to this point, God is ready for it to start anew right here, right now, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the comfort 
that comes from God being our shepherd. I shall not lack in anything I need. I shall not want. He'll make me lie down in green pastures. He'll restore my soul. My cup will overflow. You say, well, I I'm, I'm, I'm love the Lord. I'm there, but right now I don't feel it. Then I direct you to the very end of that Isaiah 40 chapter. At the very end, God says this. Be patient. Those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. Walk and not faint. Oh, teach me, Lord, to wait for you, the good shepherd. So those are our three points. That's our class today. Now, I want to tell you, before we do Phil Keggy doing Ringo, I've got some opportunities for you if you're interested. Um, David's put together about 15 pages or so. It's uh, entitled, The Lord is My Shepherd, and it's the shepherd motif throughout Scripture. Not commentary per se, just over and over, all of the different passages that show this concept of God being a shepherd. And then David, in the second part of it, actually goes to some attention to talk about how, through this, God not only judges that which needs judgment, but also has mercy upon his children. And so if you would like this, we'd be honored to email it to you. And uh, we don't send you anything else. It's just this. But uh, uh, you don't have to worry that you're getting on some internet list we uh, send around. Or, or we, and heaven knows we don't solicit anything. So just info at lanierfoundation.org. We'd love to send it to you. Um, if you'd like to be, we've gotten some requests about this. If you'd like to be on our email list where we send out, each week I send out a, an email about class and what I'll be teaching the following Sunday and that kind of material. If you'd like to get those emails, we've got hundreds and hundreds who've joined the class via the internet that don't physically attend our church. And so if you all want to be on that email service, Brent Johnson, Pastor Brent would put you on it in a heartbeat. You just email him at wantmore at biblical-literacy.org. The dash is important. Biblical-literacy.org. Want more? We'll get you on the mailing list. So that's what you've got. And with that, uh, I want to pray a blessing over you. And then we will go to uh, Phil Keggy doing Ringo uh, to take us out of class. Our Father, our Shepherd, our Protector, our defender, our leader, our cheerleader, encourager, intimate. Thank you for your love, your care, your comfort, your attention, even your discipline when we need it. Draw our hearts to you. Let us set aside every impediment that would hinder us from resting in the eternal provision you made for us through the cross and the resurrection and the promise we have 
of an eternity spent in your service and in your kingdom through the blood of Jesus. We pray, amen. So with that, here's your song. In the town where I come from Lived a virus too small to see But some folks said it was bad They suggested a quarantine So we bought a food and more Toilet paper and bags of beans And we binged on our TVs In our state A state of quarantine, a state of quarantine With our friends six feet away Wearing masks to make headway And the band begins to play We all live in a state of quarantine A state of quarantine We all live in a state of quarantine.